trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. All right, I don't know what happened. Uh, man, I'll tell you, I had a wonderful dinner and meeting with a friend. We caught up. I came home, I went to bed, and in the middle of the night, I woke up with uh, whatever, I don't know, whatever bug it is that uh, basically turns your nose into a faucet. I guess it's going around. So, yeah, well, yeah. welcome to cold and flu season, and, and welcome to uh, another inspiring description and, and uh, discussion of my medical conditions. No, I just, I don't think I felt a cold come on that, uh, that quick and that hard before. Nonetheless, duty calls. There are many things that need to be discussed today, and there's truth to be proclaimed in a crisp, upbeat fashion, which I'm very happy to do. I'm just hoping I can keep my voice, because this is this is always the stuff that just goes right for the throat. Psychologically, that's a lot harder on me than, you know, the whole COVID thing. Well, you'll die if you catch this. Oh, well, I, I, can, I can deal with dying, but losing my voice, now that would be, that would be a tragedy. Anyway, welcome to the program. Uh, there is much to, to talk about today. I'm going to start with something a little politically incorrect, but still very relevant in terms of how our, our institutions in society have been co-opted and carefully, and I will say this, deliberately moved hard to the left over time. I've been watching a little series of, of uh, posts on Twitter. I guess they, they're still called tweets, even if Twitter is now called X. But it's been showing the, <clears throat> how do they call it, the woke, wokeization of various uh, sectors of American society. So you can see this is how the, uh, say, the professional sector, doctors, for instance, their political ideologies, uh, typically, you know, they, they ran pretty middle of the road, maybe more conservative, you know, going back to about 1980. But over time... You see this incredible shift to where by 2020, the vast majority of doctors identifies, you know, as left wing or at least left leaning. And this is true with uh, accountants. This is true with um, lawyers. It's true with with even even technicians and engineers and things like this. It was like, well, what's what is the one thing that all of these different professions have in common? And this is going to make some people uncomfortable to acknowledge this, but they all pass through the gates, that, uh, that gateway of academia. So to me, this points to academia is what has been captured by the left. Philosophically, that's the, the worldview that is, is portrayed. And this is not some stunning revelation. Oh, well, nobody saw that coming. People have been talking about it for many years. I think I've been paying pretty close attention for at least the last 30 years. And the, the idea of, well, what's the most politically correct place that uh, you're likely to encounter? The college campus always has been right there at the forefront. So intellectuals, academics, that's where leftism <clears throat> seems to find the most fertile ground. And uh, that's pretty much where we have seen uh, the, we've seen academia become co-opted, not just for advancing left-wing values, but it's also become far more focused on things like prestige and image than on substance and character. 
A good example of this would be Harvard's now former president, she resigned yesterday, Claudine Gay. Now, I've seen a lot of different commentaries on this, and I know that there are those who want to just boil this down to, this is just angry, racist white men, you know, trying to, to desperately claw their way back into relevancy. But I don't think that's it. I think it's more a matter of we have seen a shift take place to where reality doesn't matter as much as some preferred leftist outcome. Thomas Lifson, writing for uh, AmericanThinker.com, talks about how the Harvard Crimson is now reporting that Claudine Gay has resigned as president. By the way, I don't know how this happens, but she will be keeping her $900,000 a year salary, even though she's resigning. Great when that works out like that. I mean, I wish her the very best. But uh, they report that in the face of continuing discovery of plagiarism evidence in her published work, Claudine Gay has resigned. This is what the article says. Harvard President Claudine Gay will resign Tuesday afternoon, bringing an end to the shortest presidency in the university's history, according to a person with knowledge of the decision. It's not clear who will be appointed to serve as interim president. University spokesman Jonathan L. Swain declined to comment on Gay's decision to step down. Her resignation just six months and two days into the presidency comes amid growing allegations of plagiarism and lasting doubts over her ability to respond to anti-Semitism on campus after her disastrous congressional testimony December 5th. So the corporation, which is apparently Harvard's highest governing body, is expected to announce the resignation to Harvard affiliates in an email later today, and uh, that was actually yesterday that it was published. Gay is also expected to make a statement about the decision. So she's confirmed her departure. Now, six new incriminating instances of apparent plagiarism might have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Now here, the author, uh, Thomas Lifson, says, look, I have long believed the price of keeping gay would be too high for Harvard's key constituencies to bear, and eventually they would bring enough pressure on the members of the Harvard Corporation to, to defenestrate gay. If you're not familiar with that word, let's throw her out the window. I know, more people need, need to experience the defenestration <laughs> approach. This, uh, by the way, comports very well with what James Howard Kunstler was talking about, saying, you know, it's, it's going to come back in such a way that Harvard, in order to maintain the appearance of propriety and rectitude, is going to have to get her off that ship. She's the albatross around their neck because now she's she's a, a distraction as well as calling everything into question. And there's going to come a point where the, the alumni, the people who donate, the ones who keep that Harvard endowment alive and well, are going to say, screw this. You guys are a clown show. We're going to stop donating. So money talks and you know what walks. Students currently on campus are one key group and knowledge that students have been punished, even expelled for offenses that gay has been given a pass on, poisons the atmosphere. So how can gay be seen as a legitimate leader if she doesn't meet the same standards that Harvard holds its students to? Now, the 13 members of Harvard Corporation, also known as the president and fellows of Harvard University, have the formal power to hire and fire presidents. It's widely believed that the richest member among them, billionaire heiress and former Obama administration official Penny Pritzker, led the search committee that hired Gay. The exposure of their choice as an incompetent plagiarist, tolerant of Jew hatred, is a gigantic blow to their standing. Their overhasty defense of her record when plagiarism charges were first vetted also discredits them. 
They were also entrusted with the stewardship of an institution with nearly 400 years of history, and they failed to preserve the legacy for which they took responsibility. So, here's what Gay said in her letter. She says, after consultation with members of the corporation, it has become clear that it is in the best interest of Harvard for me to resign so that our community can navigate this moment of extraordinary challenge with a focus on the institution rather than on any individual. End quote. Yes. So, we can navigate this moment of extraordinary challenge caused by bad judgment. Go ahead, Dr. Gay. Go ahead and say it rather than focus on any individual, especially one who's been found over and over to have plagiarized much of her academic work. By the way, I'm sorry if that sounds really condemnatory, but why give her a pass? Oh, I'm sorry, because she is a black woman and uh, therefore is above criticism. This is intersectionality and this is critical race theory at its very finest. Nobody dared to criticize her, at least, you know, from, from the political left, from academia until the the lie became too big to contain. But the problem is, gay has already damaged to Harvard's core mission. Not the education of students or the production of research. Harvard's real business is is the production and maintenance of institutional prestige. And that prestige is what attracts the students, the faculty, the donors, the campus visitors, and other people who bring value and further enhance their prestige. And it's taken a gigantic hit. I have a link to this article, which I'm going to enclose in today's show notes. By the way, the person who wrote this article has three graduate degrees from Harvard and taught in all three fields in the Faculty Business Administration and Faculty of Arts and Sciences. So this is not somebody just pulling this out of their ear. Thomas Lifson has a terrific article. It's worth your consideration. Not so much so good. We can all get together and we can hate on Claudine Gay. Look, she has reaped what she's sown. It's a tragedy. Even if you disagree with her philosophically, it's tragic when you see someone crushed by their enormous bad choices. But use it as a learning opportunity to understand just how deeply this infiltration has become, how far those who are trying to prop things up that, uh, that don't really matter, the prestige over you know, the, the actual character and, and substance, they'll go a long way. They'll risk a lot in order to maintain that illusion. But now that the facade is cracked, we can see that uh, what lies behind it is not nearly as magnificent as what we were led to believe. So maybe we can come back to reality, at least in this area. Maybe. I got my fingers crossed. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to the sponsors who make this program possible. They include QuiltAndSew.com, Ironsight Brewing Company, TMCPNation.com, and LifesavingFood.com. By the way, Ironsight Brewing Company, you can check them out at Ironsight, S-I-G-H-T, Brewing C-O. Yep, that's it. Brewing C-O. Ironsight Brewing C-O. That's a subscription coffee service. So if you need a kick in the seat of the pants, and I mean a good kick, a quality kick, these are the folks you want to talk to. So one thing that I noticed during the, uh, the, during not the Harvard pandemic, the COVID pandemic, sorry, it's very similar. What an interesting Freudian slip. 
Okay, make a note here. I'm going to have to tell my therapist about that when I decide to go to one. Anyway, a lot of the doctors who spoke up, or at least spoke against the grain of the medical media government Borg during the COVID pandemic, many of those doctors paid a high price. And it wasn't just, you know, the government or professional organizations. The media piled on, too, to smear their names. Well, look at these people, guilty of disinformation and so forth. I'm trying to remember the name of the doctor. I want to say it was Dr. Ryan Cole um, here in Idaho, who uh, they still want to go after him. As you know, well, he he challenged the narrative, and that was an unforgivable sin. But in, in a state next door to us, Washington State, there is another physician whose medical license is being threatened because she dared speak up. It's a pediatrician being investigated for misinformation. This is an article by Jordan Alexander on intellectualtakeout.org. And it's about Dr. Renetta Moon. She's a pediatrician who says once she saw the data, she knew she had to speak out. Over her more than 20 years practicing medicine, including more than 17 years treating high-risk patients, Dr. Moon had never been anti-vaccine until she saw what was happening with the COVID-19 vaccines. You understand? She wasn't the anti-vaxxer. She saw something that made her go, whoa, hold the phone. Something's not right here. In Dr. Moon's words, quote, as the data rolled out on the vaccine and COVID-19, it became clear that children had a basically, basically a zero risk of death from infection by COVID, whereas they have potential serious risk from taking the COVID-19 shots. She goes on to say physicians are ethically obligated to speak when concerned about the risks of administering a medical product. Now, for her integrity, Dr. Moon was met with a warning from her university employer and ultimately dismissed from her role at Washington State University, where she'd been a founding volunteer of the university's medical school and served on several of the school's committees. As previously reported on Intellectual Takeout, the rift between Dr. Moon and her university employer stemmed from her appearance at a a December 2022 roundtable discussion hosted by Senator Ron Johnson in Washington, D.C., Alongside other scientists, medical professionals, doctors, and advocates for the vax injured, Dr. Moon spoke on her own time, not in a university-related capacity. I voiced my concerns about the danger of giving the COVID-19 vaccine to children. I said that physicians are being silenced. I didn't tell my school that I was going to the event because it was on my own personal time. I didn't think more of it, Dr. Moon said. Then, in March 2023, Dr. Moon received a memo from her medical school employer, a warning specifically related to her COVID COVID vaccine testimony in Washington, D.C. In this communication, she was told, essentially, to stop talking about the vaccine issue. And she was dumbfounded. She says, I was surprised. I thought we still had some free speech. On June 29th, Dr. Moon got her walking papers given by way of a memo stating, your participation is no longer required. Now, Washington State University and the Washington Medical Commission have launched an attack on Dr. Moon's medical license. WSU reported Dr. Moon's attendance at Senator Ron Johnson's roundtable to the WMC saying, we become aware of a former faculty member that engaged in activities that could be perceived as possible spread of misinformation. So in turn, the WMC is now investigating Dr. Moon's medical license in the state, alleging unprofessional conduct for her anecdotal testimony in Washington, D.C. 
The situation was further complicated by the fact that the initial complaint notice was sent to an old address, giving Dr. Moon less time to respond. The letter from the Washington Medical Commission, she says, was mailed to an out-of-date address on August 1st of 2023. The current owner of the home forwarded the letter about a month later. I was traveling and did not open my mail until October 4th of 2023. At that point, I communicated with Washington Medical Commission and worked to arrange legal counsel. Now, Dr. Moon is not taking this attack sitting down. With the help of the Silent Majority Foundation, she's pushing back against the WMC. She says in her response, recent actions by the WMC targeting the free speech of licensed physicians have made it increasingly difficult for physicians to ethically care for patients in the state of Washington. Dr. Moon believes that this investigation sets a dangerous precedent and sends a message to future medical professionals about the price they may have to pay for speaking out. Persecuting physicians for voicing legitimate concerns about the dangers of a medical product is extremely dangerous, she says. Healthy medical schools must promote free speech and open debate. If our newly minted doctors are afraid to critically think and openly discuss topics, will we have checks and balances? No. We will all be increasingly trapped in the nightmare that's swirling around us today. Now, Dr. Moon's ordeal is just one more example of the censorship resulting from the ideological agenda that's infected campuses across America. For Dr. Moon, given that her parents grew up behind the Iron Curtain, the situation has eerie echoes from history. She says suppression of free speech is occurring on college and graduate school campuses across America. We are driving straight into a very bleak future. Our schools resemble those in tyrannical countries where citizens have lost all freedom. Do we want this future for America's children and grandchildren? So Jordan Alexander says it's for this reason that Dr. Moon is pushing back against this investigation by the WMC. She believes that doctors need to be free to be honest with their patients and the public. Now, Dr. Moon has a clean career history of patient care, no prior actions, investigations, or even lawsuits against any of her medical licenses. In early 2023, she decided to relinquish the Washington State medical license she had held since 2004 by not renewing it. And she did this as a result of growing restrictions on free speech. She was concerned that colleagues were facing repercussions for openly discussing problems with the COVID-19 shot, repercussions that made it difficult to provide ethical care. As a result... WMC is investigating someone who doesn't even have an active medical license in the state. That doesn't mean, though, that that investigation won't have an impact on Dr. Moon. Dr. Moon says the actions by a state medical commission against one medical license can negatively influence the licenses that a physician holds in other states. This system was put into place to keep bad doctors from harming people throughout America. It was not created to punish physicians for voicing legitimate safety concerns. Now, certainly the stated cause for this investigation is highly irregular. According to Dr. Moon, medical licenses are typically investigated when there's a concern about a physician's ability to safely care for patients in the state that has granted their license. Physicians are often investigated for issues related to personal alcohol or substance abuse or their mental health. Now, Washington State University was transparent about its reasons for filing a complaint against Dr. Moon, namely that she'd spoken out against the COVID-19 vaccines, which equated to her speaking against the approved narrative. But the problem is, 
this narrative is crumbling as individuals like Dr. Moon continue to speak out. For example, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is suing Pfizer over the company's claims about its COVID-19 vaccine's efficacy rather, and Pfizer's attempts to censor public discussion of the product. So the point here from Jordan Alexander is that all it takes for censorship and lies to win is for those who know the truth to stay silent. Fortunately, a few brave souls like Dr. Moon are standing against this tyranny and fighting for truth. I'll tell you, if if you want to see a tragedy, look at how trust in the expert class has fallen, especially over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. Lots of experts, people we trusted, told us to do things that we wondered, is this really in my best interest? But we did them anyway. And it turns out they were wrong. How many of have actually admitted they were wrong? Very, very few. Do you see the problem? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm a little wound up today. I don't know why that is. Maybe that's the cold medicine talking. I don't know why, but I am definitely feeling a little bit froggy. So I'll try to rein it in so I don't uh, generate more heat than light. This is kind of my unofficial motto for this year is uh, more light than heat. And that's, uh, that's kind of how I go about looking for information. When I want to better understand the world, look, there are a lot of voices out there. Some of them are very, very talented. Some of them are very good at expressing their point of view. Some are very fiery and and charismatic. But I'm looking for light. And and I hope, you know, I I hope that's that's kind of self-explanatory or at least self-evident in terms of what constitutes light. If you are reading something or you're watching something or you're listening to something and you come away from it with a sense of, edification or or enlightenment as opposed to just righteously ticked off and mad and you know ready to go spread some of that anger with with other people i think that's the difference okay more light than heat that's my goal and i look i can tell you right now as far as resolutions go i'm i'm sure i've broken it already but i think it's a worthy goal for this year and that is going to be my goal so if I step out of line, I'm trusting you to help uh, bring me back in line and say, Brian, chill. You need to just take it easy. All right, let's talk about the realization that no one is coming to save us. Now, that is not a mindset of defeat, okay? That's not the same thing as just giving up. In fact, as J.B. Shirk explains, it's a call to stop waiting for permission to save yourself. Love his latest article. It's, it's titled, Do We Hit the Iceberg or Finally Change Course? Speaking of the year 2024. He says, it's difficult for any Americans who love this country to watch its political, economic, and military leaders, in quotation marks, destroy it. Part of the political theater propping up the illusion of electoral choice in this kabuki dance that the state-controlled press calls democracy is the lie that office holders from different parties are at each other's throats. More Americans than ever finally see through this convenient fiction and understand that a single uniparty acts as a guild of political thespians who are the face of a permanently entrenched national security deep state that actually runs the show. 
Furthermore, more Americans than ever finally recognize that the United States is not a country that supports free markets, but rather a central bank-directed financial cartel that regulates labor, commodities, and transactions so stringently that there is nothing outside of the government or Wall Street's economic control. See, somebody else had something about nothing outside of the state. Everything within the state. I believe Benito was his first name. Anyway, taxing Americans' labor, forcing them to use an inflation-driven paper currency, and encumbering their ownership of real property are not policies for encouraging middle-class prosperity. They are chains meant to create debt-anchored, government-dependent slaves. J.B. Shirk says for many decades it seemed as if a vanguard of American communists were pushing these destructive policies and operating as a kind of fifth column from within an otherwise pro-America governing class. Whether that fifth column was always much larger than it appeared or whether it simply succeeded through strategic patience in conquering America's political and economic institutions and converting them to its advantage, there is no question that America's internal demolition is now an all-of-government operation. For instance, he says, you don't hand a private central bank the power to print dollar bills unless you expect those dollars to become untethered from any gold standard. You don't print and spend money without budgetary constraints unless you never intend to pay down those debts. You do not engage in a proprietary mon- Ponzi in a monetary Ponzi scheme rather that artificially raises the price of stocks and real properties while depreciating the common person's meager savings unless you plan on precipitating the mother of all economic crashes in the future. And you don't start seeding the idea of a new central bank digital currency unless you tend to take advantage of that economic crash and transition the whole population onto a mandatory system of government welfare. So Shirk says when our political and economic leaders have complete control over what's in your digital wallet, they will have complete control over what you say, what you do, where you go, and what you own. Having sabotaged our economic system for decades, they will nonetheless shamelessly blame its engineered collapse on the systematic unfairness of free free market capitalism and insist that they're saving the world with a digital currency capable of promoting sustainable equity, which will be nothing less than full-blown communism. Now, he says certainly the military and wider national security apparatus have thrown their lots in with the communists. When your nation is bankrupt, you do, not, you do not cavalierly jump from one war to the next, especially when the strategic value of kinetic operations is questionable. The risk of escalation is high, and the only sure winners are defense companies with office supply budgets larger, larger than the GDP of small countries and the transnational investment houses that make a fortune from organized slaughter. He says, if you're actually concerned with protecting national security, you do not aid and abet illegal immigration or transport tens of millions of unknown foreigners, each carrying unknown diseases and unknown motivations for their illegal intrusion. You don't take them into small, unsuspecting towns throughout the U.S. and then force these communities to feed and house the interlopers by dipping into their already insolvent municipal budgets. If you're actually interested in winning wars, you do not designate patriotic flag-waving Americans as potential domestic extremists while running commercials seeking to enlist psychologically unstable they-thems who are more interested in cutting off their own genitalia than putting the pointy end of a blade into an enemy combatant. If you're actually committed to preserving the U.S. Constitution, you do not put the whole American population under warrantless surveillance and excuse that grotesque affront to the Bill of Rights as necessary for national security. 
You don't conspire with social media companies, search engine monopolists, financial institutions, and internet free speech providers. None dare call it fascism to censor Americans' free speech, punish them for their unapproved thoughts, and intimidate them into silence. You do not squash dissent and label political opponents terrorists. These are the actions of totalitarian police states, not the policies of any nation that could honestly claim to be free. D.C.'s permanent ruling class and its Marxist globalist allies throughout the globe are dedicated to one goal, that is, eliminating national cohesion and erecting an authoritarian technocratic superstate in its place. Now, here's the bad news. Not one institution exists to help ordinary Americans. The Pentagon is woke and ineffective. The FBI Gestapo is singularly invested in preserving the deep state's power. The Federal Reserve is using green energy-induced inflation to transfer as much wealth as possible from poor and middle-class Americans to the uber-elite before intentionally crashing the global economy. The Department of Homeland's insecurity is using our open and undefended borders to flood the country with foreign terrorists and soldiers. Now, i gotta, I got to hit the pause button here for a moment. You might think that that's just hyperbole. I don't know for sure that it's all terrorists and soldiers coming over, but the there are an incredible number of young, as in military-age men, from places other than, you know, South America and Mexico, including Chinese, Africans, and others, that are coming in here. So it does, it does make you wonder, is that within the realm of possibility? I mean, I don't want to believe it, but I have to concede it very much is within the realm of possibility. Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, and the rest of the World Economic Forum's faculty of Dr. Evils continue to promise more viral pandemics, internet outages, and electric grid failures. And the criminal justice system excuses violent crime as, an, as necessary in order to fight what it calls white supremacy. Because for Democrats, two wrongs always make a right. An entirely partisan Department of Injustice continues to punish J6 protesters for accurately identifying the 2020 election as tainted by mail-in ballot fraud. And with the whole world watching, the U.S. government seeks to lock up Donald Trump before he can return to the presidency. So as we enter 2024, there's widespread public agreement about two things. One, something big is about to happen, and two, whatever that is, it sure as hell won't be pretty. So while it may be getting pretty ugly fast, there's an upside to what's coming, and that is, as a country, J.B. Shirk says we can finally pull this disgusting Band-Aid off, face reality for what it is, and stop pretending. However bad this year might prove to be, it will also prove to be tremendously liberating. Why? Because one way or another, he says, things will soon change. For too long, those who run America have had two things in common. Number one, a hatred for individual freedom. And number two, an even deeper hatred for the one country on the planet explicitly founded on protecting our individual freedoms. As a national security surveillance state superseded the U.S. Constitution, the leftists have controlled academia, journalism, the legal system, and entertainment. And they've shoved anyone with a working brain out the door while assuring themselves that they deserve their privileged social positions and unearned accolades. They tell themselves they're smart and enlightened, but anybody capable of self-examination knows this not to be true. Why? Well, simply because leftists are not happy people. They haven't figured out any special meaning to life because to them, life is meaningless. In other words, for too many years, a collection of the most depressed, least curious, morally relativistic, and intellectually homogenous people on the planet 
have been given pampered positions in exchange for acting as nihilistic and narcotic-dependent sea vessel captains willing to steer us into an iceberg of decline and failure. He's got a way with words. We'll come back to this in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, sorry to leave you on that cliffhanger. I just wanted to get to the the very last paragraph of J.B. Shirk's article about uh, 2024. Do we hit the iceberg or do we finally change course? And I'm very, I'm flattered to find that I'm on the same wavelength as him. And and maybe as I was explaining with the, in my conversation with Eric Peters yesterday, it's weird to feel optimistic as we come into this new year, because already, you know, things are weird and getting weirder, but... I'm relieved, like like Mr. Shirk is, we're not going to be stuck in this rut forever. Change is going to happen. And there was a time when I would have fought against it. No, 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 don't let things change. But no, I'm okay. Let it come. Even if it's painful, let it come. The only way through the change is to go forward through it. You know, that's the only way to deal with it. And I think that we're up to it. With God's help, I believe we're up to it. So here's what he counsels. He says, you know, again, we've had all of these these people who have been placed in in leadership positions, the the most depressed, least curious, morally relativistic, intellectually homogenous people on the planet have achieved these pampered positions in exchange for acting as nihilistic, narcotic-dependent sea vessel captains willing to steer our ship of state into an iceberg of decline and failure, which I think is actually a very fitting description of what we saw with the, the installation, notice I didn't say election, of, of Joe Biden and uh, his installation in 2021, and from the very first acts that he undertook as president, it's been about steering us directly into the iceberg. So, as that iceberg approaches, Americans who have long objected to this national suicide may at last get their say. People with little left to lose often rise, sometimes lead, but they rarely obey. And maybe 2024 will be remembered as the year Americans finally changed course and saved themselves. But Brian, you're still talking like something bad could happen. Yeah, I think I think that much is pretty much written in stone. Sorry to be, you know, negative as far as, uh, you know, it's, it's not like we're going to avoid it. This is this is part of that fourth turning cycle that's playing out. We are about to hit the really interesting parts. And, and this, is the, this is the tough part. And for me, mentally, it's like, oh, okay, you got to steal yourself because the climax of a fourth turning doesn't happen just once. Boom, it's done. It takes time. How long did the Great Depression and World War II take? Okay, probably won't take quite that long. Maybe the World War II part, but we're talking, it, it could be several years before things finally sort themselves out. So what do you do in the meantime? Okay, a couple of things I'd like to point you toward. One is our article of the day, and it's about finding our hero's voice, which is not only possible, but desperately needed by a world in need of heroes. So that would be my first advice is read this article by Mike Fairclough and find your hero's voice. You may not think of yourself as heroic, but I promise you, you would not be listening to this. You would not be aware of the things you're aware of if God did not have some purpose for you to serve, some greater purpose. 
be it big or be it small. That doesn't matter. What's, what's essential, though, is that you fulfill that purpose. The puzzle pieces will click into place. You just got to trust the one who, who set those pieces in motion. Now, the other thing I want to share with you is a thought from uh, Jeff Thomas. Jeff is the, I believe, the founder of International Man, and he advises, fasten your seatbelts. This is what he says. He says, imagine you're mid-flight on a passenger jet, and the captain flies directly into a Category 5 hurricane. The flight attendant calmly says, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign, as we may be expecting some turbulence. Now, of course, the above situation is absurd. No passenger jet pilot would ever put his passengers in such danger. But tragically, governments sometimes do exactly that. Sometimes they do it on a small scale, such as when a small country adopts collectivism, only to discover decades later that collectivism doesn't actually work, and eventually, as Maggie Thatcher said, you run out of other people's money. Then there's a period of depression followed by a rebuilding period during which the electorate decides whether to be sensible and dump collectivism or whether they choose to be foolish and begin the collectivist conundrum anew. Now, as absurd as this latter choice may seem, it's all too common. Argentina, in particular, has been doing it for nearly 50 years. But the larger the country, the greater the catastrophe when it all falls apart. And he says, therefore, it stands to reason, when it's the world's foremost empire that's passed its sell-by date, the damage will be catastrophic. The damage from the hurricane will be centered on the empire itself, and those within the empire will be most directly impacted, but the effects will be felt well outside its borders. The more closely a country is connected to the empire economically, the greater the lesser the the greater the lesser country will feel the damage. For example, at the present time, if the US is a country's major trading partner, that country will experience damage significant enough that its economy might well collapse along with that of the U.S. Okay, that makes sense. But why should we be talking about this now, he asks. Yes, the U.S. is indeed troubled, both internally and externally. Still, the news media have regularly presented national leaders and other pundits who assure us that the storm that's being flown into will only result in temporary turbulence and that Category 5 is a gross exaggeration. But he says, let's have a look at that for a moment. In the last half century, the U.S. has gone from being the foremost creditor to the foremost debtor nation. At that same time, its wage level has risen so high that the U.S. can no longer sell American-made goods, even to Americans. And its factories, predominantly in China and Mexico, are producing the vast majority of goods. Unfortunately, relations are on a steady decline between the U.S. and these countries. The U.S. has even been engaged in saber-rattling with regard to China. But the U.S. has always had an ace in the hole with Europe. Although it's, a sell, it's self-destructively on a campaign to end fossil fuel production domestically, it has for decades provided liquefied gas to Europe, primarily shipping into Hamburg Harbor and distributing from there. In the meantime, Germany formed an alliance with Russia, from whom it also receives gas to power German industry. In recent years, Russia has been building a direct pipeline from Russia to Germany to provide gas more cheaply than any other country can provide, at roughly 11% of what U.S. gas can be provided for. With the understanding that this gas line would come on stream in 2022, Germany foolishly shut down all its nuclear power plants, thus painting itself into a corner. Clearly, the opening of the Nord Stream 2 valve would have been a major, major event, as it would not just mean cheaper gas for Europe, but an end of U.S. hegemony over Europe and a shift in the balance of trade to Russia. But the pipeline was sabotaged before this could happen. It would seem that the U.S. hegemony would be sailed 
saved rather as the Europe as Europe would fall back on U.S. gas, even though it was cripplingly expensive. But then an unexpected wrinkle occurred. Germany, Germany rather, went shopping and found they could buy gas from China, India, and Saudi Arabia. It was more expensive than the Nord Stream gas, but it was still cheaper than American gas. Odd, though, as neither China nor India are gas producers. So where was this gas coming from? Well, as China, India, and Russia are BRICS countries, rather, the gas was now the very gas that Germany was to have received through Nord Stream, but now quite a bit pricier as it had to be piped a lot further and there were now middlemen to be paid. So how did the situation play out? Well... U.S. gas is still the most expensive and therefore least desirable, and Russia, instead of being economically crippled, was now selling more gas than before and experiencing a boom at a time when much of the world was sliding into economic turmoil. And in the ensuing 18 months, Germany would find that it could no longer sell its products internationally as the cost to produce them was now ever higher than before. So recently, there have been rumblings in the Bundestag that... Out of, one out of three German industrial companies is hoping to leave the country with the majority choosing China as their destination. How about that? So unless the U.S. could salvage the situation, its hegemony over Europe and its claim to empire was soon to end. Now from here he goes into some talk about the uh, Mediterranean and particularly the Gaza-Israeli problem and how this plays into these these gas fields which may very soon have a new owner. Now, this is, this is the crazy time. And, and he says, look, the U.S. president appears to be changing from a black hat to a white one and then back again repeatedly. And while it makes the White House appear to be hypocritical and untrustworthy in the extreme, there's little else that the president can do. He's squeezed between a rock and a time bomb, not just a hard place. Jeff Thomas says, as I I rarely write on current events, preferring to focus on the overview, the big picture. But he says, this may be a moment where it's important for the reader to sit far back from the present noise from the media and to assess the degree to which his own future is dependent on the outcome of these events. The jet pilot has turned us into, has turned into a category five hurricane. And for those who are on the flight, he says, indeed, this would be the time to fasten your seatbelts. I know that sounds kind of ominous. But here, let me put it in practical terms. What are you doing today that will ensure your ability to feed your family, provide them with clean water, warmth, shelter? Those are the kind of things we need to be focusing on. By the way, that's going to require some teamwork. Are you building relationships? Are you becoming an asset yourself rather than a liability? This is The Brian Hyde Show.